Well, we have all experienced something we have in common. If you haven't experienced it, I guarantee there are people all around you that wish you had experienced it. It's what we sometimes call an attitude adjustment. If you've never had one, I tr- trust me, everyone around you is praying for it for you. Different authority figures adjust our attitudes. Parents adjust a child's attitude with a speech or a spanking. Spouses can adjust each other's attitude with loving confrontation of sin. And certainly the shepherds of Christ's church provide regular attitude adjustments. They're called sermons. That's what we do. We realign the heart with scripture. That is an attitude adjustment. Certainly the Word of God provides attitude adjustment by convicting us of sin, by admonishing our hearts, by encouraging us, reminding us of the great truths about God. And so that's what I want to speak about tonight is attitude adjustment. And we're progressing through our series, Strength in the Desert, in which we're examining how saints in the Bible wait on the Lord and how they've done this with excellence, how they've navigated these dry deserts of feeling as though God is silent, feeling as though God has abandoned them or forgotten about them. And we've heard specific lessons from individuals or groups in Scripture. And tonight I want to examine a saint, really a true believer, a true worshiper of God, that might not be very well known to you. In fact, there's very little meaningful information about him. But he does have a very helpful lesson for us. And the man we're examining tonight is named Asaph. And the lesson that he has for us is be confident in God's performance history. That when you're waiting, when God seems silent, be confident in his performance history. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see tonight is what we might call the the anatomy of an attitude adjustment. Kind of dissecting it and taking it apart. That He needed to really elevate his trust in the Lord so that he could see what he had done in the past as an indicator of of what God would do in the future. And so we're going to look at Psalm 77 together this evening. It's one of my favorite psalms. I've I've referenced it often in my preaching, but I don't think I've ever actually preached through the whole thing. If I have, don't tell me. That would discourage me greatly. But we're going to go through the whole thing tonight. And so in Psalm 77, you'll notice that at the top, there is a, a, a little information. This is called a superscript. And it says, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph, just so you know, the superscript was not put there by the publisher of your Bible. This is part of the inspired Hebrew text. And as a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, that is verse 1, and then our verse 1 is verse 2, and so forth. So it says, to the choir master, which means that this is a song that was meant to be sung as part of corporate worship, and it is according to Jeduthun. Now, Jeduthun was one of three lead music worshipers and singers in King David's day. He, was, he had the job of leading Israel in praise to God. First Chronicles 25 and Second Chronicles uh, 5 talk about him. Uh, I'm sorry, First Chronicles 5. It's very likely that according to Jeduthun, it refers to a, a specific melody or maybe a style developed by Jeduthun. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, it would be in our modern day, we would say, uh, do this song like this composer would do it, or do this song the way this artist would do it in a style that's very familiar to us. And listed with Jeduthun, whenever he's listed, in fact, always first in the list is another man, Asaph. Asaph, the son of Berechiah. 
And so three men are always listed together, Asaph and Jeduthun. Asaph would become the ancestor of the Asaphites. This would be a, a family or a guild of musicians in the Jerusalem temple, and they served both before and after the exile. They were one of the, the few really consistent factors in Israel, both before and after uh, Babylon. Now, Asaph was actually a very close relative of Moses. Both of them were descended from Levi. First Chronicles 6 tells us this. Some feel that this psalm and the other 11 psalms that are designated a psalm of Asaph are actually just a, a collection, and it means that they were performed according to the style of Asaph, according to how the Asaphites would do the psalm. They feel that this psalm may have been written by uh, someone else other than Asaph during the exile because of the sad, hopeless nature of the psalm. Now, I don't take that view, and a lot of others don't as well, because many others feel that Asaph wrote this psalm himself. It, it would have said, according to Asaph, if it was in the style of the Asaphites. But it says, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. Now, we do admit that the Hebrew prefix that's translated the psalm of can have a variety of meanings. So really, both possibilities are reasonable. But the way I look at it is, is there's nothing in the text preventing us from taking this as being written by Asaph himself. And certainly, it was written by an individual, one person, whom, for lack of a better idea, we can call Asaph. So we're going to call him Asaph. And I do believe it was written by this individual. Now, Psalm 77 can be understood as an individual lament. It is a psalm of sadness. It's, it, it concerns, though, a national crisis. This is not about a personal crisis in the life of Asaph. It's about a national crisis. Now, before we get overly focused on what this psalm means for you and what it means for me, I think it's important for us to understand what it meant really in the broader scope of redemptive history. That's always important to be reminded of this. Psalm 77 is the lament of Asaph over the possibility, the, the, in his mind at least at first, the probability, in fact, that God had finally wearied of Israel. That God's patience with Israel, which, who, who had so frequently betrayed God over and over and over again, that his patience had finally come to an end and that he was finished. God's love for Israel is and should be considered a model for God's love for us in the New Testament church age. This is very important for us to understand, and this is why I take this moment to speak of this. If it was possible for God to completely dismantle his promises to Israel, to stop them, to decide to, to go off track, so to speak, then it is theoretically possible for me to sin my way out of my salvation. And so that is a very a very difficult thought for us. And so how God handles Israel is extremely important to us and it speaks to the character of God and how he handles us. And just to put this in a larger context of the, the, the fact that the Old Testament is saturated with concern for Israel, with weeping concern for Israel, I'll give you two examples. Moses, as the first example, what was his concern for Israel like? Well, in Exodus 32, after Israel sinned against God with the golden calf, Moses interceded for Israel, and he asked for God to forgive them. And he said, if you will not forgive them, then would you blot my name out of your book? In other words, I don't want to be included with the saved if you will not save them. And that's a phenomenal thought. I've prayed for many of you. I've never prayed that if you don't get your act together, may I lose my salvation. 
I pray if you don't get your act together, well, Lord, that's your business with them. But I don't have the heart of Moses. The Apostle Paul had the same heart. Romans 9, 1 through 3, very clearly speaking of ethnic Israel, not speaking of some sort of metaphorical Israel in the church, ethnic Israel. He says in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And just like Moses, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could never face the Apostle Paul and say, I don't believe that God will restore a national Israel. Because he would say, really? Because I offered to lose my salvation so that God would restore a national Israel. What a heart, what a weeping sorrow on behalf of Israel that we see throughout the Bible. And so it really shouldn't surprise us at all to see Asaph literally losing sleep and, and just wrenched with anxiety over God's treatment of Israel. In fact, the fate of Israel is so important to Asaph that he feels as if it's himself that's on trial instead of Israel. He's waiting to see if God would return and be like he once had been with Israel in the days long past, if he would be protective and caring and kind and generous and long-suffering. Are those days coming back, or is it just going to wind down to this horrible, flaming, burning end and just a smoldering memory of what once was is all that's left? So what was the problem that Asaph was having as he waited on the Lord? Well, he found himself in a very difficult situation is the problem he was having was that the only possible source of comfort he had, which is God himself, had become a source of anguish. That we're going to see that every time he thought about God, it brought bad feelings. This is terrible. Just the thought of the God he loved and served now caused pain to him. And so for Asaph, the, the battle that he's having during this time of waiting, the battle is entirely in his heart. It's in his attitude. That's it. And what we're going to see really is an amazing attitude judgment uh, adjustment. Now, I want to point this out, and this is so useful to us. By the end of this psalm, there's no miraculous difference. There's no changing of the heart of God. There's no sudden rescue from anything. There's only one thing that changes, and that is Asaph's heart. That's it. Nothing else changes. And yet it makes all the difference in the world. And it makes everything change when his perspective now is altered. So let's read through the entire psalm and just kind of set this in our, into our minds as clearly as we can. Psalm 77, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of all the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. 
I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. Your earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I think Asaph is going to be very helpful to us to see kind of the anatomy of an attitude adjustment. He needed to become more confident in God's performance history. He needed to be more confident that what God has done in the past has a bearing on what he will do in the future. And so to put this in a little bit more usable form for us, this morning we talked about how to, and I thought this would work well this evening as well. I want to tell you how to experience an attitude adjustment so that you can be confident in God's performance history. How to experience an attitude adjustment so that you can be confident in God's performance history. And we're just going to follow along with what Asaph does here, the the path he goes on. So there's three steps to this. Step one to experiencing an attitude adjustment, we'll just call it this, scare yourself. Scare yourself. And this is what he's going to do. In fact, we could divide this down into four ways or four pieces to scaring yourself to make sure that you're as spiritually weak, anemic, helpless, and hopeless as possible. Now, obviously, you don't want to do that on purpose, but this is where you're going to often find yourself beginning, so we may as well just make it step one. Step one Scare yourself, and the first piece to scaring yourself we might call refuse all comfort. Refuse all comfort. Now, verse 1 does give us hope that Asaph believes that God will hear him. This isn't a, a whimpered, muttered, silent prayer. This is Asaph literally crying out to God, not just metaphorically, but twice he says, aloud to God, aloud to God. He's speaking, and he characterizes his speaking as forceful, as focused. But I don't think we can take the phrase, and he will hear me, necessarily as this great overwhelming confidence that Asaph has in the Lord that God will resolve all of his issues and his problems. The point of this first part of the psalm is that Asaph lacks that confidence. He doesn't have it yet. He doesn't have assurance. And so it seems best in the context of the first part of the psalm to understand that Asaph believes that at least God will listen to him. Whether God's actually going to do anything or not remains to be seen, but he's going to listen. And by the way, though the doubt he expresses in the following verses to our our ears is going to border almost on heresy, the fact is, is that when he does feel hopeless, when he does feel destitute, when he does feel like he has no options, he is running to the Lord in prayer. He is running to the Lord Sometimes someone will tell me of a complaint or a trial and that they're undergoing and they'll say this, I've heard this a thousand times, I'm praying, but it doesn't seem to be doing any good. Well, Asaph does model something for us. First of all, I would praise the Lord that you're praying, but the question I often ask is, are you praying or are you praying? Are you crying out to God? Are you getting on your knees? Are you weeping before him? Are you saying, Lord, I'm not going to get up from this place until something happens? 
Well, one thing we can commend Asaph for is that he wasn't just praying. He was praying. He said, my hand is stretched out without wearying. I'm not going to stop until something good happens. And so before we're too hard on old Asaph, he is, in fact, setting a, a marvelous example for us. But we know this in verse 2, that although he's rightly seeking the Lord, he's stretching out his hand throughout the night to God. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Now, this is very, a very interesting way to express himself. He separates himself and his soul as if it's two different people, as if he's trying to do something for his soul, but his soul won't respond right. It's like, don't look at me. It's my soul is the problem here. It's like, soul, I've been travailing in prayer all night for you. Soul, I've been asking God to help you, but you won't take any comfort. You won't take any comfort. You won't be soothed. Now, Asaph is self-analyzing here. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's crying out to God, but there isn't that expected emotional relief that he's longing for. Now, does that mean that the prayers of Asaph aren't working? No, it just means that his expectation of, of, of instant emotional gratification isn't being met because prayer isn't an instant spiritual steroid shot. That's not what prayer is. And as we're about to see, it seems that his prayers are tainted with a less than confident view of God. They're very anemic prayers to begin with. Now, there's a second piece to scaring yourself. The second way to scare yourself is associate God with pain. Associate God with pain. I've had people tell me I can't even pray because every time I think about God, all I can think about is the fact that he's hurting me right now. And that's the problem that Asaph is having in verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It's a good thing to remember God, to, to meditate on our Lord. But when Asaph does it, he moans. It literally means it makes him make an audible noise that he, he can't restrain his emotion. In fact, the same word is used in Psalm 46, verse 3, to speak of the constant roaring and foaming of the ocean. That he's just, I think of God, I moan. I think of God, I moan. I think of God, I moan. And when he meditates on the Lord, this meditation is supposed to give him strength and power, but he says, my spirit faints. It literally means he gets sick. He gets sick to his stomach. He gets weak. This is terrible. Asaph has known as a worshiper of of God, to run to God, to meditate on him when he causes, when, when he's in trouble. But now the thought of God, instead of causing comfort, causes pain. There's no place else to run. But the thought of God should cause consolation, not pain. I mean, after all, hasn't Asaph read the Psalms? Hasn't he read Psalm 50, which says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth? Hasn't he read Psalm 73, that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? Hasn't he read Psalm 81, Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob? Here's the paradox. Asaph wrote all those Psalms. We want to say, Physician, heal thyself. He thought of God as glorious in Psalm 50, in Psalm 73, in Psalm 75, 76. In Psalm 77, now the thought of God has the opposite effect. All of the good memories of God's help and protection are actually making him heart sick. Why is this? Well, I think the answer is very simple, that because God 
is the only one who can produce a solution, and apparently he has decided not to. That in the past, God has given solutions, and now he seems to be done. We see a similar dynamic in Job chapter 9. In Job 9, Job is expressing the paradox that from his vantage point, God is the one afflicting him, and yet God is his only hope. And at the end of the chapter, the result is that Job is terrified of God, and he says, I need a mediator. I need a peacemaker between me and God, and the only peacemaker between me and God can be God. That's not fair. And so we see Asaph here just kind of going to pieces. There's a third piece to scare yourself, a third way to scare yourself. Bathe in anxiety. Bathe in anxiety. And so if you don't want to trust the Lord, just whatever anxious feelings are coming over you, just let them wash over you and enjoy it and scrub yourself in anxiety. Well, verse 4 presents a, a picture of Asaph forced to stay awake, and he blames God for this. You hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep, and it's your fault, God. It also pictures a, a picture of a man so troubled that he's, he's having trouble verbally expressing himself. I cannot speak. I can just moan. I just, just wail. But the root cause of his sleeplessness is great doubt and fear. He's overcome. He's frozen so that he can't even formulate a verbal prayer. All he can do is cry aloud. All he can do is moan. Listen, I've spoken to a lot of people who are under the weight of heavy, heavy, heavy anxiety. And I have seen people in my office have trouble formulating sentences because their mind is so overwhelmed, so anxious, that just the basic function that the brain needs to put together a string of words that make sense becomes very difficult. And that's what Asaph is saying here. I can't even speak. I can't sleep. He's totally paralyzed by anxiety. Now, I think we should be fair that the text doesn't make a judgment about this one way or another. It doesn't necessarily condemn him for this. I mean, after all, his spiritual concerns go very deep, and his concern is on behalf of Israel. As a matter of fact, we have another example of this in the Apostle Paul's great description of his trials in his ministry. He polishes off a long list of these trials in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, and he says, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And this is by the same man who wrote in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. And so we don't necessarily condemn Asaph or Paul, certainly. It's just the fact. They're overwhelmed. They're bathed in anxiety. Asaph can't sleep. He can't speak of it. He's, he's being sapped of his spiritual potency and power. And it's not helping him. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of its strength. And that's what Asaph is experiencing here. There's one more piece to scare yourself. Let past blessings from God depress you. Let past blessings from God depress you. In verse 5, Asaph is running through the memories of how God has blessed and protected and favored Israel in the past. In verse 6, he remembers what he calls his song in the night. It's the emotional and spiritual comfort that Psalm 42 verse 8 speaks of. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. But listen, this isn't Asaph experiencing the comfort of the song of God in the night. It's a remembrance of how those sweet songs used to come to him, used to come to Israel. There used to be days of joy and blessing and protection 
and benevolence from God, it's as if he's saying, oh, how wonderful it would be to return to those glorious and happy days when the Lord was so active and so intimately involved at such an obvious level. But now these remembrances are just depressing him. He's heart sick. Why is this? Because he's come to the realization that it may be that the best days are behind him. The best days he's ever had are behind him. Graciousness of God may be behind him. I may not see God move like I used to. So to put yourself in the position to need an attitude adjustment so that you can be confident in God's performance history, step one, scare yourself. Refuse all comfort. Associate God with pain. Bathe in anxiety. Let past blessings from God just depress you. Now, obviously, these are things that we don't want to have happen, but it's where we find ourselves. It's very often our starting point where we realize Boy, I'm, I'm spiritually defeated here. I'm anemic. I'm weak. I'm not trusting the Lord. But at the end of verse 6, we see the beginnings of a transition. This attitude adjustment starts. Step one to receive an attitude adjustment, scare yourself. Step two, slap yourself. This is exactly what he does here. Now, in the early 1970s, some of the most iconic television commercials were for a men's aftershave product, one of my favorite commercials ever, called Skin Bracer. And it pictured men slapping themselves with this aftershave and then saying, thanks, I needed that. And the slogan was, Skin Bracer hits you just right. And it's meant to, to convey this image of suddenly being reoriented and, and, and refocused and right on track all of a sudden. And in essence, Asaph is about to slap himself. He's about to shake himself out of this mire of darkness and misery. When we were in Texas, a lot of parents had this saying that when a child was misbehaving, they would say, I just want to shake him. They just want to go for a minute. Nowadays, we'll get arrested for that in the state of California. But that's not overly ineffective, actually. He just look at me. And so Asaph, it's like he's looking in the mirror and he just says, I need to shake myself. I need to slap myself. At the end of verse 6, he makes an evaluation. He says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. And he asks five rhetorical questions. Verse 7, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse 8, Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Verse 9, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Verse 7, Will the Lord never show grace and favor to me again? Verse 8, has his covenant love, his chesed love that says, I will always keep my covenant, has that actually been finished? Verse 9, has God bottled up his compassion never to let it out again? In other words, has Israel finally pushed God too far? The obvious answer to these rhetorical questions is never, never in a million years. And so the, the psalmist is beginning to move his heart toward comfort. He's asking questions to which he already has the answer. And it's like Asaph has gone to the mirror. He's looked himself in the eye and he's confronting the ridiculousness of how he's been thinking. And he makes a decision. He makes an attitude adjustment. In verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. 
Now, I don't want to derail our progress here, but there's a substantial translation issue that hits here. It's kind of like driving fast and then you hit a mud puddle and you just kind of have to slow down for a moment. We have to deal with this verse. We hold adamantly to using what we call an essentially literal translation, which makes every effort to accurately represent exactly what the original language says rather than trying to just interpret and destabilize the text to not always represent precisely what the original says. That's, what, that's what's called dynamic equivalence. Solid, scholarly, essential, literal translations such as the ESV, which we use here, the New American Standard, New King James Version, they're all outstanding. They're all absolutely, absolutely trustworthy. But on extremely rare occasions, even the original language is ambiguous. And it's never, by the way, in all the Bible, that never happens in a text in which life and doctrine stand. It's, it's always in a minor issue. But in this case, there's one particular noun in verse 10 that can either mean the years of or the changing of. And so it makes quite a difference in what it means. For example, the ESV, as I just read, then I said I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The New American Standard says, then I said it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. But the ESV, if your your ESV has this, there's a margin note that says, or this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates this word as change, not as years. Dr. Alan Ross, a preeminent psalm scholar, translates based on the context of verses 7, 8, and 9. His translation is, then I said, this is my sorrow, the changing of the right hand of the Most High. So based on this difference, there's basically two views. First view is that the psalmist is deciding to use God's historical dealings in years past, in the years, as an encouragement. I'm appealing to these years. I'm going to look back at what God has done to encourage my heart. The the second view is that the psalmist has realized that his grief is caused by a wrong belief that God has changed the way in in which he deals with people. So which one do we go with? Well, I personally lean toward the second view that he's realizing that his grief is caused by a wrong belief that God has changed in the way he deals with people because it shows the self-correcting of his view of God as being changeable. But the beauty of it is, in either case, whichever view you go with, the result is the same. Verse 10 represents a complete change of heart. It represents a self-examination, this moment in which he analyzes the basis for previous bad thinking. In other words, verses 7, 8, and 9, and especially verse 10, is a, is a course correction. Asaph has slapped himself back to spiritual reality. So step one, to put yourself in the position to need an attitude adjustment so that you can be confident in God's performance history, scare yourself. Step two, slap yourself, which means to say, wait a minute, has God actually changed Or is it just my sorrow? Is it my grief? Is it my emotion that's misleading me to think that he has? Well, now that Asaph has begun to bring about this change, he can proceed and we can proceed to step three, which is, we might call it, to soothe yourself. To soothe yourself. And how is Asaph going to soothe himself? Well, he's going to do the opposite of what he did to scare himself. How can you soothe yourself? First, Take all comfort. Take all comfort. Instead of refusing all comfort, 
Asaph can now take and enjoy comfort. And here's the, the really amazing paradox. The memories of God's goodness and his faithfulness that at first brought only torment and torture, they're revisited now. Asaph is going to go back to them, but they're not tainted with despair. Now they just shine in their own glory as evidence of how marvelous God is and how marvelous he will continue to be. Look at verses 11 and 12. It's just a whole shift here. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, these verses speak of two different kinds of remembering. Verse 12 speaks of an internal recounting of the deeds of God in the heart and the mind. Ponder, in the beginning of verse 12, it doesn't mean to just remember something once. It it means to actively recount and replay events in the mind, to actively think about them. But there's a second kind of remembering that happens in verse 11. Asaph says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Remember is a verb form in Hebrew that means I will cause to remember. It means I will make mention of it. I will publicly speak of it. I will not only cause myself, I will cause others to remember. And how do we know this is true? Because in the superscript, it says to the choir master, I want others to hear this as well. This is a public recounting of the deeds of the Lord. This is Asaph publicly saying, hey, don't be discouraged. Don't think that God has forgotten you. Don't think that God is done with Israel. Listen to all the great things he's done. And now Asaph aggressively takes all comfort. There's a second way to soothe yourself. Instead of associating God with pain, associate God with pleasure. Associate God with pleasure. In verse 13, Asaph takes pleasure in God as a holy God, a set-apart God, a unique God, totally different, totally pure, totally perfect. And Asaph inserts a, a little spiritual pride in his God. He says, what God is great like our God? By the way, we're getting a little hint here, just a little one, a little hint as to what's coming. We're getting a hint as to the very specific memory that Asaph is going to use in the coming verses to soothe his own heart. And that is the memory of God saving Israel through the Red Sea. In fact, verse 13 gives us this hint. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? We get this hint because if you think on Exodus 15, 11, the song of Moses and Israel that they sang in celebration of God's rescue right after the Red Sea... Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Exodus 15, 11 in this song, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Asaph is giving a little hint. You know what I'm about to talk about. I'm about to talk about the Red Sea. The thought of God should always, always give us pleasure. I mean, Psalm 16, verse 11 You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why are we afraid to associate our God with pleasure? He's the most pleasurable thing possible. Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. To take pleasure in God speaks of being tremendously filled up and satisfied and satiated that nothing else matters. 
Listen, when the thought of God brings you pain instead of pleasure, what's happening there? What's happening is that you've created a false God in your mind who does not exist. Beware of the idolatry of painting a picture of God that's fabricated, that's not accurate. The Apostle Paul proclaimed his pleasure in God three times in his writings. He said, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. And so we need to have an accurate picture of God so that the thought of God brings pleasure. But there's a third way to soothe yourself. Instead of bathing in anxiety, bathe in peace. Bathe in peace. And I just ask this question for you to answer in your own heart. When was the last time that the peace of God just so overwhelmed you that you literally at that moment didn't have a care in the world? Really, that ought to be our daily experience. There is a peace in knowing that God is mighty, and not just mighty, but mighty to redeem, mighty to rescue And we see this in verses 14 and 15. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph recounts how God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. In fact, this word redeemed in verse 15 is the same word used to speak of a wealthy man securing the freedom of a relative In verse 14, God made known his might among the peoples. And again, Asaph is giving us a little hint as to the memory that he's going to fall back on. We get a glimpse into this specific memory, the exodus through the Red Sea again. Because verse 14 conveys exactly the same idea found in the song of Moses and Israel after God's victory over Egypt. Exodus 15, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. So to the reader of Psalm 77, oh, I know where this is going. I know where you're headed. By the way, this is very important here. This little phrase at the end is not just stylistic. It's very purposeful. In the end of verse 15, did you notice how Asaph refers to Israel as the children of Jacob and of Joseph? Now, why is that important? Now, obviously, Jacob and Joseph have something in common in that Jacob is Joseph's father, But they have something else in common. Both Jacob and his son Joseph were in Egypt centuries before Israel was even a nation and before they had a need to escape, a need to be rescued. But both of them knew they were not home. Now listen, in the days of Joseph and Jacob, Egypt was the place on earth to live. The the country of, the, the area of Goshen that uh, Israel was given, that his family was given, and they grew there. That was, that was prime real estate. It was beautiful farmland and, and pasture land. I mean, it's the type of place that you get to and say, this isn't bad. I think we'll settle here. But they knew God wasn't done. They were certain of this. They had certain hope that they weren't home, and they also had certain hope that they were going home. So here's what they have in common. As Jacob was dying, he called his son Joseph to him and he commanded him. He said, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. He said that in Genesis 47. Where is that? In the land promised to Abraham, often called the promised land. It's promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Same thing. Many years later, as Joseph lay dying, 
He made his relatives swear to take his bones to the promised land someday. That Egypt was not our home. God was going to fulfill his promises. Exodus 13, 19, hundreds of years later, as Israel is escaping Egypt, the text says, quote, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. We bathe in peace, being certain that God always finishes what he starts. And so when Asaph says, the children of Jacob and Joseph, oh, God always finishes. He always finishes. There's a fourth way to soothe yourself. Instead of letting past blessings from God depress you, let past blessings from God cheer you. Let them cheer you. There was a movement a while back when a lot of men were preaching on joy to talk about the fact that Christians aren't happy, they're joyful. I don't know about you. I want to be happy too. I mean, that has to do with our circumstances. And I understand that when... When things are bad, you can't necessarily say at this moment, I'm happy. But given the fact that God is good all the time, God is great all the time, God is mighty all the time, I can be happy anytime I want to, to be honest with you. So let the past blessings from God cheer you. Now, Asaph is going to now recount the rescue of his people. He's been hinting at this. He's going to recount the Red Sea when God parted the waters. And for four verses, he uses mighty and powerful language to describe this event In verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And Asaph personifies the water as if it's a person who's terrified of God. They were afraid. This is a a phrase that means they were writhing in pain. The waters were going, oh no, oh no, God is here. Now we know from Exodus 14, verses 19 and 20 that the pillar of cloud of the glory of God separated the Egyptian army from God's people. There was, a, there was a separation there. And on the Egyptian side, we know that there was darkness and there was terror. And on the side of Israel, there was light and there was peace. And Asaph describes in verses 17 and 18 the process of God killing Pharaoh's army. Water and thunder and lightning, earth shaking. We see in verse 17, the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That's what happened on the Egyptian side of the cloud. And all of a sudden, just like when Jesus calmed the sea instantly, On this other side of the pillar of cloud, the glory of God, all is tranquil and peaceful and safe. In verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Israel walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. God's presence, his footprints, as Asaph puts it here, his presence was mysterious. He was leading his people to safety, and yet he wasn't visibly seen among them. He wasn't a man that they could look at. And the obvious lesson from Asaph here is that he's saying, if you led your people to safety once before when your footprints were unseen, then clearly, though your footprints are unseen now, you will do it again. He's learning from God's past. And look at the serenity and the quietness with which Asaph now describes the leading of God. In verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. By the way, in these last few verses of Psalm 77, we kind of get a microcosm, a model of what's happened in Asaph's heart. At first, there's water and thunder and lightning, the earth shaking in his heart, panic, distress, agony, help, help, help. 
But then, just like verse 20, all is quiet. And all that's heard is the gentle pastoral scene of little lambs and little sheep being led along very quietly and peacefully to safety. And Asaph identifies the human shepherds of Israel, Moses and Aaron, with the obvious implication here, which Psalm 23 says more explicitly that in reality, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Moses and Aaron are just the representatives of God. And so Asaph has reminded himself of the past goodness of God, and instead of being depressed by this, the very same memories, by the way, that were depressing him earlier, He's cheered by these memories because they they hold promise that God will once again come to the rescue. Now, a biblical list of the faithfulness of God really ought to soothe you. This is why knowing and seeing the character of God and the story of all of redemptive history is so important to understand the story of the Bible. You can recount God's fidelity to his people, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that that he created a nation from whom would come a Messiah who would be your Savior and Lord. You can recall the loyalty of Christ to his Father's redemptive mission for Jesus to go all the way to the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe. You can recall the reliability of the plan of God for the church that Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that the church will be successful, that the kingdom of Christ will come to the earth. In fact, the Bible is the only divinely inspired record of God's performance history. If I could put it this way, this is God's resume right here of his faithfulness. And if the events of history were a competition, the scoreboard would say God is one billion and O. He's undefeated. He always wins. And the more you spend time in the Word and listening to sermons expositing the Word of God, the more you're saturated in this faithfulness of God, the the soothing of seeing God's performance history, to just be astounded by that and to be overwhelmed by it. But the works of God aren't just limited to the pages of Scripture. And for you personally, taking an honest and an objective look at how the Lord has been gracious and how he's moved in your life is, is powerful and it's soothing and it's comforting to just stop and look back. And for me, I could make a short list of God's work in my life. All the little blessings and some pretty big ones. I could talk about the fact that I had a home to be raised in. That I had many Christians that surrounded my family. I could talk about the fact that I got to know my very godly grandparents at a, at a young age. I could talk about the comfort of watching my dad get ready for work early every morning. I remember that vividly as a small child. I could talk about the blessing of being born despite the fact that my mother had a miscarriage both before and after me. I could talk about being saturated in Bible stories and being in Sunday school every Sunday. I could talk about being on the brink of death when I was 18 months old and having my dad save my life by getting me through floodwaters to a little airport in Central America to fly me to Los Angeles to a children's hospital for emergency surgery to save my life. I could talk about having a kindergarten teacher that I still remember. She was so sweet and kind to me. I could talk about learning to read and love books and love what they give, which led to receiving and reading my first Bible. I still remember my first Bible. I could talk about experiencing the routine and the joy of going to church on Sunday and then going out to eat after church with someone in our church family. 
I could talk about the precious retired couple, Mr. and Mrs. Knopf, I still remember them, who never forgot my birthday from the time I turned one all the way into the time in my early married years until they both passed away and went home to the Lord and they always wrote in my birthday card, remember that Jesus loves you. All of that was just before I was five years old. Now, imagine if you did that with your entire life to just list how God has been faithful, 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 how he has placed goodness in your life. Secular psychology would counsel you to analyze your past so you can see whom to blame. Asaph would counsel you to analyze your past so you can see whom to bless. To whom all praise and honor and glory is due and in whom you can rest and you can relax. So I guess the question here is, did Asaph experience an attitude adjustment so that he could be confident in God's performance history? We can say certainly, with certainty, yes, he did. In fact, we even get a a literary and grammatical portrait of the change in Asaph's heart. And it happens really in three phases. Phase one, look with me at verses two, three, and four, and notice all the pronouns. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Then in phase 2, he's still saying I and me and my, but he's telling himself to check his attitude. Verse 5, I consider the days of old. Verse 6, I said, let me remember. Let me meditate. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Verse 10, then I said. Verse 11, I will remember. I will remember. Verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then in phase 3, beginning in verse 13, it's all God. It's all God. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That, brothers and sisters, is an attitude change. And even the way the pronouns are used shows that. And by the way, right in the middle of the psalm, without us even noticing, and it literally happens in the middle of a verse, he switches seamlessly from talking to himself to speaking directly to the Lord. In verse 11, right in the middle of his attitude adjustment, now he can properly address God. Verse 11, it's like he's, he's talking to himself and he's saying, I need to have confidence in God. And first he speaks to himself, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And then he turns, yes, I will remember your mighty works of old. He will remember. He will remember, and he switches from giving himself confidence to now speaking to the Lord. It's almost as if he's standing outside the throne room of God saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And then he walks into the throne room of God with confidence and with joy and with purpose. So, when you're waiting, 
when God seems to have gone silent, and when it seems that the best days are behind you and not before you, when you're in a desert and it seems that God has forgotten, what do you do? Well, we do what Asaph did. Remember his wonders of old. Ponder all his work. Meditate on his mighty deeds. And trust me, it will make all the difference. It might not change your circumstances at all, but the beauty of it is you won't care. You won't care because you'll see the bigger picture. God has been so, so faithful. Why would I think that today was the last day of his faithfulness? Why would I think that God resigned his commission in my life? He hasn't. He is not. Our Father, we thank you so much for Asaph and this little portrait of a man who is desperately crying out to you, yearning for answers, and he doesn't have any. And in the scope of 20 short little verses, he goes from complete utter defeat to total victory, and nothing changed. Nothing changed except his heart. And he went from having his heart skip a beat to being able to skip down the sidewalk, as it were, in joy and in lightheartedness. And Lord, I know that there are those listening even tonight, whose hearts are heavy, who are waiting and waiting and waiting, perhaps for the salvation of a family member, who are waiting for good news in a particular area of life, who are waiting for a relationship to be restored, who are waiting for something something good to happen. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they would be able to be soothed, to be comforted, to relax in the fact that your performance history is impeccable. You have the greatest resume in the history of the universe. You were never intimidated. You were never afraid of the future. You are making the future. You form the future. You are the future. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here to be able to rest, to genuinely have peace that results in sleep, We think of Psalm 4, verse 8, that I will lie down and sleep in peace, O Lord, for you make me dwell in safety. Lord, I pray that for each person here. pray that for myself. All of us struggle with anxiety and having these moments where we panic and wonder if the best days are behind us. Help us, Lord, to face each day with a smile that this could be the day where the blessings just pour down. And if we get all the way to the last day of our lives, and in our life, there, there are things that have not been yet resolved, promises not yet brought to fruition, questions not yet answered. Might we even face that last day with a smile because we're literally about to get the answers. And so we win either way. Lord God, I, I know the panic and the anxiety and how desperately ill it can make a person in their spirit, in their soul, even in their bodies. And so we pray, Lord, for that person that he or she would receive relief and help and a giant smile because your performance history is absolutely perfect. And we look forward to all the answers to prayers, all of the giant aha moments that we'll have when we come before you and the, the laughing and the singing and the, the shouting and the dancing because of the wisdom and the might and the glory of God and how incredible your plan is. Might we have that faith now?
We pray these things for the sake of Christ and because of him. Amen.